Welcome to Brand on Purpose, the podcast dedicated to uncovering the untold stories behind the most impactful purpose-driven companies, people, and organizations. I'm your host, Aaron Quitkin. Some of the most successful companies started in garages. Today's guest, founder and CEO of LoveSack, Sean Nelson, got started by making giant beanbags in his parents' basement. Now, LoveSack is a technology-driven company that designs, manufactures, and sells unique, high-quality furniture. The company's proprietary, designed-for-life approach results in products that are built to last a lifetime and designed to evolve as customers' lives and styles do as well. LoveSack offers premium foam beanbag chairs called sacks, modular couches called sectionals, and the sectionals stealth tech sound and charge system providing fully immersive surround sound and wireless charging inside the couch. If you think this is all too good to be true, I promise you will not after you hear my guest in just a few minutes. And in addition to the furniture being extremely comfortable, responsible production and innovation are at the center of the brand's design philosophy, from the repurposed plastic bottles that are turned into fabric to the recycled cardboard used in shipping. Sean, welcome to Brand on Purpose. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So you have a 25-year arc in this company. I feel like the last five, six years, let's just pretend I don't know anything about the company, you guys have found a lot of momentum and a lot of love, no pun intended, in the market. So I want to go all the way back to 2005. You actually won a $1 million investment from Richard Branson from Virgin on Fox Network's primetime show called The Rebel Billionaire. In fact, I think you're even made acting president of Virgin Worldwide for some period of time, which I also want to talk about. (laughs) So if you can just start the founding, this 25-year arc, take your time. It sounds super interesting. And where you got to not only probably meet Richard, but this is like before Shark Tank with Shark Tank. This is like the original Shark Tank, right? That's right. Kind of. It's like Shark Tank meets Apprentice meets Amazing Race. All those things. Yeah. So let me take you back even further just to set the stage. I made the first giant not beanbag, not called a love sack. In, in 1995, I was 10 days out of high school sitting on my parents' couch. And I thought it'd just be funny to make a beanbag, you know, like this big, like from me to the TV, the whole living room floor. So I got off the couch, drove down to the fabric store, bought some fabric, brought it home, cut it out, made it. And everywhere I took this thing, because it ended up not being a beanbag, I couldn't possibly find enough beanbag beads to fill this thing. So I, I cut up my parents' camping mattresses, you know, like a piece of yellow foam with a bungee cord around it and spent three weeks stuffing this thing. But everywhere I took it, everyone wants one. Like, holy crap, where'd you get that thing? Back of a truck, driving movies, camping. And fast forward three years till I'm in college. Sean, before we fast forward, I have a question for you. Did you say you were 15? So I was 18, 18 years old. And I was just this, you know, funny, impulsive kid that obviously acted on every idea that came into my head. But I mean, I think that is kind of the lesson. That's been my vlog title for a long time, get off the couch, right? Like, like I meet entrepreneurs all day long who, you know, they have an idea, but I don't know, what do you think? And I think that's really the dividing line is, is can you actually take action? It's one thing to have ideas. It's another, you know, it's another thing to be able to any action. And that's been a mantra I've lived by for a long time. Ironically, as a guy who sells couches, get off the couch, you know, do it now, something, advance it, move it forward. And, and it was a, obviously a, the turning point, but I, I went away for two years on a mission for my church. I learned Mandarin, Chinese, and Taiwan as a missionary, which played into the story later. I came back home 
to college in 1998. And finally, after a few months of seeing this thing go up and down the street again in use, my neighbor convinced me to make them one. And finally, I decided, okay, I'll do this, but I needed a name. You know, if I'm going to sell them the product as a business. So love, peace, hate, war, hippie, beanbag, love bag, love sack. That sounds cool. Paid 25 bucks to register the name in the state of Utah and began making these things as a side hustle through college as I waited tables at night to pay my to pay my way through school and graduate from the University of Utah in 2001. And so this was just a side hustle, little tiny company, never, you know, made any profit, just kind of sucked the life out of me as I was going to university stuffing giant not bean bags in the afternoon after school and delivering them to people, friends of friends, whatever. And what happened is in April of 2001, I was trying to sort of wrap it up. You know, it never made any money. It was like such a pain in the butt. I, I had my degree coming in just a few weeks. I had job offers and interviews happening. And everyone I told that I was going to close this thing was like, no, you can't close Love Sack. I love my Love Sack. You know, we'd been out there on the scene and, and the brand was always like catchy. Obviously, you can like it or hate it, but you don't forget it. And so finally, we took it to a trade show in Chicago, kind of on a whim thinking, you know, maybe we could get big orders and turn it into a real business. At, at least I could quit knowing I tried, <laughs> really tried. And we got discovered by the Limited Two. So this is Limited Brands, one of the biggest retailers in the United States. They place an order for 12,000 little sacks, not knowing it was like me and a buddy and like a wood chipper shredding foam in the back of this furniture factory. And, and I took the order and faked my way through it and, and ended up, you know, using my Chinese to get the stuff made in China. The empty sacks, we had to fill in the States. We ended up having to figure out a way to shred more foam than this wood chipper. So I navigated my way to farm equipment, this thing called a hay buster, a hay grinder powered by a tractor, got an agricultural loan from the U S government for farm equipment to bring this equipment to downtown Salt Lake, where we would shred foam now by the ton and stuff them into these little love sacks, shrink them down, ship them off. And I collected a quarter million dollars from the limited two on this order. Didn't make any money again. 9-11 had happened while we were in the factory. Price of foam went up, shipping went up, all this stuff. So scrambled, went to all the furniture stores, you know, in the West, the big chains and said, look how cool we've got these giant not bean bags. Now we've invented the covers come off. You can wash them in the washing machine. We shrink them down to one eighth original size. Nobody wants it. <laughs> too big, too expensive. Your name is stupid. Get out of here. So my cousin said, let's open our own store. And sure enough, we went to the malls and they all thought we were cute, but didn't even offer us a space, you know? Yeah. By the way, that idea alone, let's open a store is almost like let's open a restaurant. Yeah. Right? <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> really? I mean, right. Anyone yeah. can do it, but it's right. a good idea. And, right. But we were, to be honest with you, and this is, again, one of my little mantras, I had embraced the economic pressure of the debt it took to get this factory off the ground. I had taken that deposit from the limited, so I had to complete that order. And I've always lived with that sort of economic, like it's kind of like sink or swim, do or die. Like I will be ruined financially if I can't find a way. And so we maxed out my cousin's credit cards once a mall finally let us in, temporary lease just for Christmas, then they'll kick us out and get someone real. But we crushed. We opened the store on his credit cards, you know, carpet paint, neon sign, tried to look real in 2001. 
it was amazing. We did, you know, six figures in sales in just a few weeks, which for us at the time was like so much money coming in at full retail margins. Couldn't believe it. People were coming in wanting to franchise, which we started doing, which was even smarter. You know, it's one thing to open a restaurant. It's another thing to start franchising it a month after you open, but we did. Brilliant. And yeah. <laughs> I don't know about brilliant, but it, it was survival. And we instantly kind of spread across the West, California, Arizona, you know, Colorado, Utah, opening Love Sack stores. And then, you know, fast forward to just a couple of years to that moment in 2004, I get recruited to be on Richard Branson's reality TV show response to Donald Trump's apprentice. <laughs> uh, uh, interesting. <laughs> yeah. And didn't even know what the prize was. It was a miss. It was supposed to be the biggest prize in reality TV history show history. And I had to leave the company for two months. I said to my, my partners were like, you know, are you sure? And I said, I don't know, man, I just feel like, and this is a theme throughout, you know, the arc of the story. I feel like I should. And sure enough, man, ended up going 11 episodes all around the world, filming with Richard Branson. Every episode, we leave someone behind on the tarmac who got, you know, got kicked off the island, so to speak. These are all entrepreneurs vying for the biggest prize in reality TV show history. And as it turns out, I won a million dollars on Necker Island in 2005. This aired. And my runner-up was Sarah Blakely of Spanx. <laughs> you can believe that. <laughs> That's so good. <laughs> right? Yeah. So we joke, you know, I say like, well, I won the show, but she won and she won in life. But no, it was great. And it brought all kinds of, you know, attention and exposure for the brand. And we were blowing up and all kinds of celebrities were buying love sacks. And we've always sold to the NFL, NBA, Hollywood, you know, and middle America, giant beanbags for their basement. But in order to really go to the next level, we had to raise venture capital, which obviously my association with Branson didn't hurt. He invested a million and then more through that venture capital experience. And, but the venture capital approach was, hey, let's, let's actually bankrupt this company, reorganize it, get out of you know, the franchise arrangements, get out of bad leases you've signed as a 25-year-old kid you know, cause this is a few years in and let's, let's start over with just 12 clean locations. And, and by the way, we had just invented sectionals, which is these couches you mentioned, which have gone on, you know, fast forward to today, sectionals are probably the best selling couch in the United States of America right now by the numbers propelling us, you know, long past now half a billion in sales annually and hurtling rapidly toward a billion, mostly on the back of sectionals. So sectionals were our answer to, hey, people keep trying to buy this couch that's in the corner of every one of our stores, trying to look, you know, just set the context for the sacks. How much is that couch? Well, we couldn't sell the couch, couldn't deal with the couch, couldn't stock the couch, couldn't ship the couch. If only we could shrink couches down like we do with sacks, we could make them internetable. We could, you know, solve all these other problems. And we did. And we invented and patented sectionals. And, but, but then, you know, so the venture capital came in around that idea and we began opening locations all over the country, kind of these little furniture stores, trying to sell sectionals, trying to be taken seriously with the name Love Sack hanging over the door, selling couches that really were priced more like a pottery barn stuff. And that took a decade. It took a decade of reinventing the brand, you know, learning how to do retail at that scale, sophistication, learning how to cultivate the customer. I could, there's a thousand lessons within there. But if we leap all the way then to like 2015, we had probably like 50 stores selling rugs and lamps and bowls and baskets and sectionals and sacks. And we said, what are we doing? You know, we, 
like finally the sectionals were gaining a little bit of traction and we looked around the landscape and looked at what brands were coming up on the direct consumer front casper tesla with their showrooms you know what's happening in retail and realized like we have the killer app for couches and we're hiding them underneath the bowls and baskets and decorative accessories and and light fixtures let's get rid of all that stuff Let's reinvent ourselves as the direct consumer model around this couch. And let's focus only on that. And then let's finally advertise. Let's finally do national TV advertising. Let's finally get behind this in every respect. And it was a reinvention. And from 2016, 17, we grew like mad, got to about hundred million, took the company public in 2018, are listed today on NASDAQ as love, which I'm very proud of, L-O-V-E on Wall Street. And it really harkens back to our ethos, which I'm sure we'll get to in a minute, around our culture, around our purpose, around sustainability, and building a place that people can love to work. And and so, you know, just in the past four years since we've been public, we've six X'd our revenues, we've gotten profitable in the double digits, and are probably, in my humble opinion, maybe the most, one of the most successful direct consumer brands that exist. Cause frankly, most of them have done nothing but lose money, make a few founders super rich and been total steaming piles of garbage <laughs> as organizations. And so really proud of what we're building because I think we're building something sustainable. Right. And some of those brands that failed, we don't have to talk about, but you know, they saw this, like this fake pop during COVID that was not sustainable. So they increased their demand and then demand, you know, their manufacturing to meet increased demand and then demand went away or seeded. And now they're stuck with too much inventory and then they failed. But what's interesting about your arc is that you made, let's just say I I could be wrong, but large mistakes, learned mistakes early, early on. Right. Yeah. The biggest. You had the patience, you had the fortitude. Yeah. And you had focus. I mean, I think it's really interesting to say, okay, look, we're selling all this shit, right? But actually what people really want is the sectional. So let's get rid of all this other, you know, extraneous stuff and focus on the high margin stuff that people want. And it sounds like that was a secret, one of the secrets to your success. Yeah, absolutely. And I think being flexible enough along the way to adopt, you know, entirely new ways of thinking about the business and take risks and take the risk into TV advertising and heavy up. You know, the thing about LevSack is, Today, like I said, I think from a revenue standpoint, from a profitability standpoint, we really are one of the unlikely winners in the whole DTC movement, in the whole direct consumer movement, which is funny because we didn't obviously come up as a digitally native brand, et cetera. But we are 100% direct consumer. We don't wholesale at all. Every sale we make, and we do have pop-up shops in Costco. We have shop-in shops inside of Best Buy. They're manned by our people. It's on our system. So, I mean, we are 100% direct, which is unique. Most direct of these direct consumer companies actually have a huge wholesale component that really drives a lot of their volume. But my point is not that. My point is that having come up the hard way, as you sort of described in, in a roundabout sense, it's built a company that has really strong bones and frankly is not afraid of a recession and a pullback and you know knows how to manage itself for profitability, not just burning through investor capital forever with some idea that maybe someday there's a path to to that. And so, you know, even though it's taken us too long and even though it hasn't been a direct route, 
I think the outcome is, is again, not just a product that's sustainable. We'll get to that in a minute, maybe, but a company that is sustainable for all involved, you know, not just the founder who somehow made it out with a, with a huge paycheck or, 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 or the first PE firm that made it out with a huge return and left it in the hands of the public investor to just die on the vine. Like it's happening so much out there. And I'm really proud of that. And, you know, we'll continue on, I think, to surprise a lot of people. It's the whole, you know, slow and steady wins the race. Easy to say now because you're winning the race harder in the moment. One of the things I find really interesting, I've had like the founders of Bombas on, Allbirds, Bull and Branch. They all learned through Google, those businesses. None of them had domain expertise in those respective businesses. You didn't have Google. Were cell phones even? Maybe a flip phone? No, actually in the late mid nineties, nothing. Nope. The PC was just coming about. The iPhone came back in 2007. So when you talk about, you know, getting the agricultural loans and figuring out new ways not to use the wood chipper, but how do you like shred all this fill? That's so interesting. And obviously it takes longer because you can't short circuit or in some ways short trip, but short circuit using the internet. So I just find that really, really interesting. Well, I'll make it real for you. I had to, I had to yellow page for those of you who know what Yellow Pages is, my way to our the furniture factory that ended up selling me foam. Because, yeah, it was before Google. But we were bootstrapping in classic form. Before that word bootstrapping, I think, was a word. And, and, and you know, all this, this whole entrepreneurial movement that we're so familiar with today on Instagram and hustle culture and all this stuff, that wasn't a thing then. Like, what we were doing in college then was really weird. And as, like, young people kind of behaving this way, and running out and building a retail chain. And so, yeah, that w- it is funny to reflect on from a historical standpoint. <laughs> yeah, I just, it's so funny because as an entrepreneur, I'm like, I was like trying to find the next Dungeons and Dragons game. So <laughs> it was weird. It was different. So clearly I'll say this because it's more credible for me to say it, but you clearly have a very big heart from even when you were young, you said, you know, you went on a mission for a few years and that seems to have also transformed, not just in the name, and thank God you kept the name Lovesack. I love it. It's provocative, but also it's a great anchor to so many things. And it's memorable. And you were ahead of your time, both in naming as well as in, in the idea. But how did you and when did you bring more of the sustainability focus and the purpose-driven focus into the company? Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you asked because I think that and it's one of these things, again, that's evolved with this whole cultural movement in entrepreneurship. Like, you know, you have to like somehow be born with a purpose. And if you don't come out of the womb stating how you're going to change the world, then like somehow you, you know, you're not even in the game. Listen, man, I was just trying to make a beanbag for my friends and family who kept begging me to make them a beanbag. And we just kind of hung onto the reins for a long time. And that that same momentum carried us for honestly, like, more than a decade before we found our purpose, so to speak. But, and I think there's value in that. I don't think you necessarily need to come out because had, had I stated some kind of made up sought after purpose back then, I think it would have been wrong. And so let me, let me walk you through how that happened. We had invented sectionals and sectionals finally by around that 2015, 16 timeframe were really driving the business and driving tens of millions, approaching a hundred million in sales, which at that time felt massive, you know, and now today it's like, holy crap, we're going to go to a billion on the back of this thing annually. Pretty cool. But like, why are these working? Like, what is it about this product that's resonating? And, and frankly, it hit me one day looking 
online at Instagram. I was looking at my competitors. I was looking at Pottery Barn, hashtag Pottery Barn, hashtag Restoration Hardware. And I was looking at their images, not from their company. This is from like the consumer, right, on, on Instagram. And they're beautiful, man. They're perfect. These pristine rooms, so well appointed and children dressed to the nine, sitting at a cute like Easter. And I'm like, man, my, my kids don't look like that. My home doesn't look like, and I was embarrassed because I look at hashtag love sack. And in fact, I kept the screenshots from that day. I use them sometimes in my presentations because man, like what was crazy is they sell couches, we sell couches. In fact, our price points are the same. We're, it's a very high-end couch that we're selling. It, it lasts your whole life. But the pictures, and I, I challenge you to do it today, just look at hashtag love sack. And you see people with their dogs on sacks, people with their whole family piled onto sectionals, messy pillows, movie time, babies, kids, dogs, pets, real life, pizza, beer. You know, it's like that was what we'd see in these images. And, and it occurred to me that the reason sectionals worked and we're working and we're, we're going to work is because it answered two problems in reflecting. It answered two aspects of life. Number one, it could actually last your whole life. My sectionals right outside the door, they're 15 years old, by the way. They're mated with all of our new stuff, including stealth tech, hidden surround sound system, reverse compatible into the pieces manufactured 15 years ago. So not only could they last, but they could evolve. We could create these upgrade opportunities and ways that people can take and change. My sectionals are wearing their 10th set of covers. Well, you don't have to be a genius to figure out that anyone with a brain can kind of appreciate that. All of us, we throw our money, I'll pick on Apple. We throw our money at Apple every two years for essentially the same object. And you and I both know, like if they made that camera modular, if that thing popped out and could be replaced, if the battery, we could probably get by with one of these chassis for a decade. Now we all know why they don't do that. It's not some mystery. It's not some conspiracy. This idea of planned obsolescence is not like, you know, a evil cabal, it is a reality of life. And we've all been sucked into it. We're buying five times as much clothing as we need from furniture to electronics to whatever. And, and what's the outcome? The outcome is Apple doesn't even need to innovate. Really? Like, really? Like, because they'll just keep selling us the same stupid thing every couple of years. Well, the outcome also is there's more extraction of minerals and stuff from Mother Earth. It's and disgusting. there's also more landfills. Well, it's not up, even landfills. Right? Get, right, right, get right, this. Right. Like, we don't even bury our e-waste in America because it's too toxic. We pay Ghana to bury it in their ground because we don't even want it buried here. How embarrassing is that? Like, it's disgusting. And so what happened is around this 2015 moment where we had observed sacrals are going, and I observed, okay, this thing not only can last a lifetime, but it can evolve for my real life, my movie nights, spilling pizza, kids, babies, pets, dogs, moving, relocation. That gave rise to this design for life philosophy that we put into words, right? And it's, in a nutshell, it's very simple. It is a design framework that calls for products that are built to last a lifetime, but can evolve with you as your life changes, your aesthetics change, your taste change. Because even if the thing is really well built, if it can evolve, it's like Darwin, man. It's natural selection. It's out the door because you just don't like it anymore. It's not lovable. It's not beautiful. It doesn't fit my style. That is a very, very, very high design bar. It's the reason we don't put out a lot of products, but when we do, they're really effing good, like Stealth Tech. Like right now, 
as crazy as it sounds, I think Lovesack has created and is selling the best home theater system that exists on planet Earth, period. It's not just good because it's hidden in the couch, and it is. It's invisible. That's what makes it beautiful. You don't even see it. But it has perfect, no sound quality loss audio penetrating the foam, the fabric, and the cover tuned to penetrate that specific color of fabric, right, with perfect audio, and it's invisible to the eye. And it's in reverse compatible with this actual we've been selling for a decade or more. Now, what's my point? My point is that's the proof. And by the way, it's our patent. We invented it. We took it to Harmon Carden as a partner because we wanted their brand with us. Because, right? And now we will do hundreds of millions in just home audio. None of our competitors are, are in that space. And there's lots of reasons I could break down from a strategic standpoint why we went there. But my point is what it really is, is proof to the consumer that we will take this thing you bought maybe five years ago, the sectionals you gave us $5,000, $10,000 for, and we'll make it even cooler five years later than the day you bought it. And to me, that's a very powerful value prop that no one else has. And I offer it openly because none of the other companies are going to do it. Why are they not? No, they want to sell you a new couch. Bingo. And they've been taught that by their business schools and by just the norms of how business is done. And it's disgusting. And so what's the implication for me? So here's the funny thing. So what's it led to is this mantra that we, you know, our big, hairy, audacious goal at LoveSack, our purpose, if you want, is to inspire humankind to buy less stuff and buy better stuff. And so if I'm right, and these sectionals catch on and we can capture instead of one or 2% of market share, which we already have, maybe three or four. That doesn't sound super greedy, does it? We've already gone past a billion. We'd already be approaching the top 10 largest furniture retailers in the United States of America with one product line and on our way to more. Why? Because it makes sense for people that have a brain. Now, what's the outcome? If I'm radically successful, let's say I took 10%, 20% of the market share, there will be fewer couches sold in the United States of America than there ever were (laughs) because people will hang on to these things, which means like what's in the cards for me. Ultimately, I have to innovate and I love that outcome. I can't just milk the consumer for another 50 years for the same thing. Like, like so many companies are doing, and it's a better way of doing business, obviously better for the environment because no one's, everyone's talking about sustainability around, you know, recycled stuff and blah, blah, blah. And we do that too, by the way, we recycle more plastic bottles into fabric than any firm in the United States of America, period right now, because millions of yards go into these couches and all of our fabric in the upholstery is made from recycled bottles. We don't even lead with that. Like some of the brands you mentioned, they lead with it because that's all they have to say. We're actually, we have so many things to say about the product that we don't even leave. But my point is, and then I'll shut up for a second because I'm on this rant, but like sustainability, no one's talking about products that can actually sustain. They're just talking about inputs. For us, that's like, like table stakes inputs. Let's talk about making something that can sustain, not just because it's built well, but because it can actually evolve and change with you. That's a very hard bar to live up to, which is why we don't put out a lot of products. It takes us years to develop things, engineer things, but it's a beautiful outcome. And it's a beautiful outcome for business, for the consumer, because they can buy less stuff, but for the business too, because it'll be forced to innovate and the whole world evolves and becomes better when we don't just get to consume the same couple of the thing, you know, over and over and over again. Like we are in this disastrous cycle and Lovestack is on a mission to break it. So I feel like the mattress industry 
is also ripe for this because they're trying to tell us, and I know something about the mattress industry over the years, that we should change our mattress every five to seven years. What if that mattress was really, really good? And what if all you really needed to change was maybe, I don't know, the outer cover of the mattress or something like that? Do we really need to fill more landfills with mattresses? Right. And there's probably other. What I'm saying is your kind of two way sustainability of something that sustains, but also using sustainable materials to create the product, I think is scalable within other sectors as well. Right. Let me put it this way Design for Life is the only logical solution for all product design everywhere in every category. It will take a century to take hold because these patterns of consumption are so ingrained. We don't even question it. Here's the funny thing. Like we all kind of know it in the back of our mind with our mobile phones. We all kind of know, but like we just keep doing it. We just keep giving them a thousand bucks every couple of years. And they, they just keep burying all those resources that were pulled from the ground, the gold, the cobalt, the lithium, the, the aluminum, the silica, all of it putting it back in unreusable form just so they, they can rape and pillage the earth on the back of the consumer and build the most valuable company on the planet. And I say this as a marketer, but in many ways, you know, marketers and shareholders are in part to blame for this. Oh, right? we're all to blame. Look, I'm doing I'm supporting yeah. it. And consumers, of course. It's the whole system. And by the way, I'm not trying to like say that everyone's evil. It's more like we need to wake up We've fallen into this, just these norms of behaviors that are completely unsustainable and ridiculous. And meanwhile, we run around recycling everything, which by the way, is fantastic. But like (laughs) the system itself is completely flawed. Like, so why will you only ever see, and I appreciate, you know, your wardrobe today. You'll only ever see me in a black t-shirt. This t-shirt I'm wearing, by the way, this one, this one, I'm pretty sure is eight or nine years old. Black t-shirts, like if you launder them, right? Like they kind of last forever. They're hard to stain. They kind of really never go out of style really. And then I can do some other things, but like, it's my silent protest to the whole fashion industry. You can pick any industry you want. You want to do mattresses, you want to do cars, you want to do phones, you want to do fashion. I don't care. I'm telling you what's funny is by hanging onto the reins of this dumb beanbag company that I started in college, just trying to survive that led me through all this and I gave you the short version of the story, all these crazy experiences. I believe that this unlikely brand called Lovesack has stumbled onto the answer in design for everything in the physical world. Now, <laughs> obviously the economy is driven now by technology. It's driven by software. Like the biggest companies are really in, in that realm. And that's my point is that the stuff economy, the world industrialized on can and should be shrunken. It should have never grown so large. Our stuff never should have gotten this cheap. Our stuff never should have gotten this cheap. Like it needed to, maybe to bring our economy to where it's at, but doesn't need to be. And we're just used to it. I have a question for you. So even as we speak, whether it's inflation or supply chain issues, how are you navigating around supply chain? How are you able to Instead of saying to somebody, and I don't know how long it takes from you know the moment I hit purchase to the moment it kind of comes through my front door, but are you experiencing the same delays that some of the larger non-designed for life competitors are experiencing? No. See, people are going to think that was a setup question. It wasn't. No. I honestly didn't know the answer. No, but <laughs> but this is my point, man. I could go on for hours. The funny thing is, like once you start connecting the dots as to what I'm kind of going on about, 
the benefits for the organization, the brand, the benefits for the consumer are myriad and complete. And so, okay, let me try and, and do this succinctly. Lovesack never has been out of stock. Before the pandemic, during the pandemic, after the pandemic, we've just been cruising through while the entire world, like all of our competitors are letting people down. You know, like people are still waiting for crap they ordered from wherever months ago. Why we never been out of stock? Because when you create demand for a product that has been highly standardized, like sectionals, where the core of it is just two SKUs, by the way, South sectionals work. You buy a bunch of seats, you buy a bunch of sides, you build anything you want. That formula allows for like 10,000 permutations of sofas and 200 cover selections, you know, all these permutations to fit different aesthetics, but the core meat of the product are these two SKUs. So as long as I never run out of those two SKUs and a few of the most important covers that are sold at the highest volume, we're always in stock all the time and they can ship to you in like three days, right? And so what's That's the amazing. outcome? Did you say three days? Yeah. Yeah. For as big of a sectional as you want. It's not uncommon. You know, we, we'll quote you one or two weeks, but typically it's like three or four days and to your door. Now, as long as we diversify that supply chain to other geographies, which we've done. So we're not just, you know, manufacturing in one geography and that's how we've navigated it. And here's the key. You can say, well, every furniture company is manufacturing stuff in Vietnam and Malaysia and China, just like Lovesack. Yeah. But here's the difference. We're manufacturing redundant SKUs in those geographies. In other words, those three geographies are making the same things. Not like, oh, all my case goods are in Thailand and like my mattresses are in China and my, you know what I mean? Because then when China goes bad, you're just out of mattresses or you're just out of case goods or you're just out of bunk beds or whatever it may be. And so the whole system becomes more resilient. Now, the reality is my points of view on the global supply chain are, are very cynical. As someone who's lived a 10th of his life in China, fluent Mandarin Chinese. Like besides my mission, I also lived there for a year working and I've been back 80 times. I don't believe in it. I believe that it got us here. And in fact, we're utilizing it, but we are rapidly weaning ourselves off of it. I think what we just saw through the pandemic, we being like all of America, that entire system is so fragile, right? It's like, it's like the butterfly effect, man. Like, you know, someone sneezes, in Asia, a global pandemic, I mean, like ports and on that side, on this side and, and congestion and global economies, we have built such a fragile and frankly, environmentally disastrous concoction that we just live on and we just accept. The fact that I'm chopping down trees in Canada- And grossly inequitable. What's the long outcome, right? What's the long outcome? Okay, so first of all, we will manufacture these highly standardized units, at least the core of it, which is the bulk of the cell, which is the bulk of the material extracted from the earth, closer to the consumer, which will allow us to move raw goods over shorter distances, convert them to finished goods, utilizing probably not, because like nothing breaks my heart more than seeing someone in Vietnam sanding the peg foot for the bottom of a sectionals piece and throwing it into a bin where there are 20,000 peg feet that this person has already sanded the edges off of so that it looks finished and nice and was ready for paint. No human being should necessarily have to do that work. Like that's what we built the world on. But ultimately, if most of the things in your life were highly standardized like sectionals, they should be built by robots close to the consumer, shipped over shorter distances with a lower carbon footprint. So understand, man, I could keep going. The ramifications for this business model extend all the way back to the supply chain, all the way to the earth where the raw goods are extracted from. 
and then made better for the consumer. Because frankly, listen, it's like this. I don't believe that sectional should be the only couch in your life necessarily. You may want a certain look or whatever, or piece of art to go next to your piano. But for the place where you Netflix and chill, watch movies, hang out with your family, that should be sectionals or something like it, something highly standardized, manufactured in that way. So by the time our global brand gets to the UK or Australia or Asia, which we will, if we get to Vietnam to sell our products, I hope, or let's pick the UK. I want to make the sectionals sold in the UK, at least somewhere in Europe, in the way that I just described. Yeah. I mean, that's where this is going. That's the future, man. Now, I may be decades ahead, but I believe in it. So, Sean, I, my own humble personal opinion, I think you're decades ahead 25 years ago. And I think this is your moment. And it's a moment for everybody. And for all those, I love this, by the way, entrepreneurs out there, get the fuck off the couch and pursue your passion, pursue that vision. Because, you know, I always say the worst thing that can happen is you fail. Actually, the worst thing that happened is that you didn't even try to fail, right? That's the worst thing that could happen. At least try, especially if you're passionate about something. So I appreciate how generous you've been with your time. I feel like there has to be a part two, part three, part four. I have a feeling you're going to be back on. And because I'm in the midst of moving, I'm going to go on Love Sack. And I also will never, ever buy another couch. You've heard it here from RH. And I got to tell my wife that because that's three months and it's crap. And obviously they'll never be on the show or maybe even a client of mine ever, but that's okay. That's okay. Cause you heard it here. So listen, man, I appreciate this super inspirational. It's a great story. I know you only told a fraction of it. Even a fraction of it is awesome. And I hope it inspires all of our listeners to again, get off the couch. Thank you again. Thanks for listening to this episode of Brand on Purpose, the podcast dedicated to uncovering the untold stories behind the most impactful, purpose-driven companies, organizations, and people. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Special thanks to our production team, including Maria Bias, Michael Grubbs, Anna Lamb, Haley Sackett, and Nina Valdez. Learn more about our show, sponsorship opportunities, and hosts by emailing BOP at kwtglobal.com or visiting aaronquitkin.com. Find us on LinkedIn and Instagram under Brand on Purpose Podcast.